issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome back to school, folks. This is the home for the politically homeless and the podcast. For those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue, as always, if you like this show, you can get the word out by sharing YDHTY and leaving a review. And also, as always, don't forget to subscribe to get a piping hot episode of YDHTY delivered every Thursday. Now, this is the first new episode after our short summer break, and I am excited because back in the beginning of the year, I began exploring the healthcare debate in America and had some really interesting conversations I couldn't wait to share. Then a war broke out and derailed everything. So before we get back into the subjects of monetary policy, the psychology of tribalism, and all the other things we've been talking about over the last few months, I thought we could ease our way back in from the summer break and explore the challenge of healthcare reform. That's right, we are going to keep things super light and only talk about reforming 20% of the U.S. economy. Now, to get a baseline on the state of America's healthcare system and the challenges reformers face, I invited Dan Gorenstein, senior healthcare reporter for NPR's Marketplace and host of the podcast Trade Offs, which explores the costly and counterintuitive world of healthcare. Here's a short version of this episode. It's outrageously complicated. For more details, listen on. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I think you're actually the first Dan I have ever interviewed, believe it or not. Wow. Maybe you haven't been interviewing people very long? We're coming up on year three. That's that's shocking. I get, you know, maybe just a sort of weird pocket of naming. Maybe you're, you know talking to people named in a certain era. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you here. So I don't think people are going to get confused with the two Dans because people very rarely use my name in these conversations, but still, I just, I thought that was worth noting. I, I will say I really like, I like saying I'm going to, I'm going to call you Dan in this a couple of times. I just, I, I, you need to know that. And when, when, uh, when your mom got angry with you when you were a kid, did she call you Daniel or did Oh you, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. Daniel. I was always Daniel. Oh, okay. Growing up, you were Daniel. I was Daniel. And then because I'm in a big Irish family, I was Danny at family gatherings. And I still sometimes get Danny. And I will tell you, I will take Daniel. Danny. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, I let us go on. You know, for me, I, uh, I was, I grew up in a small Jewish family and I Mm -hmm. was Danny and I was Danny from the get go. I was never Dan. I was only Daniel when my mother was pissed. Yeah. And I um I I don't like Danny when I meet someone new, but when somebody I know who used to call me Danny calls me Danny, it's like this time machine in a beautiful way. And I feel like I can touch the person that I used to be in a way, you know? Oh, that is beautiful. That is so beautiful. Cause it's like the it's the cousins, it's the old friends. Yeah. Okay. Right? It's the people who saw you and knew you when you were a snot-nosed kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always the youngest cousin, so I think I've got a big, like, you know, youngest cousin complex. But my grand, my 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 grandmothers all called me Daniel, so it's kind of like, you know, Danny's for all like the bigger cousins who 
they were nice. I don't want to start like a family issue on this episode. I no, just really, no, 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 no. You, you could, you could hurt some feelings. You know I, I'm really looking forward to just confusing the shit out of people by throwing the word Dan around for the next however long, 40 <laughs> minutes or so. Let's do it, dude. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's confuse people. We're going to talk health policy. That, that in and of itself will do it. I know. Let's just throw another, another wrench in there. The, the other thing too, I think I should wanted to bring up as well is, so when you and I first spoke prior to this episode and... I told you that I was diving into healthcare reform. There was this pregnant pause on the other end of the line, like I had just enrolled you in a contest to eat the world's largest hamburger or something like that. Because it is a large issue. Would you agree? Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. The world's largest hamburger and accompanying it with the world's largest fries and the world's tallest milkshake. Yeah. It's a big issue. And a lot of the, I mean, for the sake of this series, we're focusing on single payer and, and whether that's a preferable system for the U.S. than what we have now or than some other system. And so my first question is, why do we focus so much on insurance rather than pharmaceuticals or hospital fees and, and so on? So I think there are a couple of things here. One is when people talk about single payer or a public option, when health policy wonks are having that conversation, Dan, it's a little bit of a shorthand to if you can have a different sort of system payment, that is how you will in fact address prices. That's what's going to help you address prices rather than kind of working within the status quo system. Because and I think this is sort of really, at the end of the day, the fundamental tension here. When people in the United States talk about health reform, what does reform mean? In, if we're talking about money, we're really talking about taking money away from people. That is hard to do. Hospitals do not like that. Pharmaceutical companies do not like that. Doctors do not like that. There will be real pushback. So if you come up with a new paradigm, a new system that makes it a slightly less bitter pill to swallow, at least I think that's some of the thinking behind this. And that's part mm. of why the conversation will talk about different payment systems as opposed to just like, let's talk about prices, but make no mistake that part of the conversation when you talk about a public option or you talk about a single payer Medicare for all system, you are talking about prices. Mm, okay. So it's really, it sounds like the focus is, or the idea I should say is you address the funding mechanism and then that in turn will have a spillover effect on prices effectively. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's right. I think sometimes when we have conversations, I think when politicians who are not health policy wonks, nor are they expected to be, talk about and, and pitch Medicare for all in particular, it can sometimes just sound like, you know, we're going to give everybody everything that they want and there's not going to be any like sort of price to pay for that. And I think that's a, a, a failure of framing things in the most intellectually honest way. And that's a, that's a byproduct of politics. This has obviously been a very contentious issue going on for a very long time. And for you, the listener, I'll, I'll put a link in uh, the show notes to, to your podcast, Dan. We're throwing out the first Dan of the episode now. Uh, I actually I'll, already I'll, called you Dan. This, this oh, is, you did? This is, yeah. Uh, 
All right. Minus one for not active listening on my part. So, so, you know, my earliest memory of the battle over healthcare reform goes back to 93 when Clinton uh, attempted to pass universal healthcare and failed. This debate goes back further than that though, right? Yeah, no, this debate has been going on since sort of the tail end of World War II. There have been several efforts made by both Democratic and Republican presidents to bring uh, universal care. And this gets back to the first question that, that you asked, Dan, about talking about prices and the pushback. And um, doctors have been very, very successful historically at scuttling those universal plans because it would the fear was that it would mean less money for for those doctors. That's a big part of why those plans died on the vine. Right. Truman Truman tried this. Nixon tried this. It was this has been a this has been an ongoing battle. And I think what one of the things that I've learned as a healthcare reporter over the last 10 years or so is that the system that we have today, the part of why it's so confusing and so complicated is because this is like this is like one of those old New England houses where you know you see addition added on after addition added added on <laughs> after addition in their three different styles because really what what has been happening from a historical standpoint is you've got in different eras different administrations and different congresses coming together to say how can we improve on this imperfect plan that we have because we're all sort of lurching inchingly lurching our way to something that resembles universal coverage, but how do we get there? Because we can't just come out and get it because there's too much opposition. That's really been the big thing that's been going on over the last 70 years. You, you mentioned doctors, which is kind of surprising to me because I think the villains in the modern day debate are usually either health insurers or uh, drug companies for the most part. Way back in the Truman days, did they have their own lobby or, or how did they go about they did have their own lobby, and I yeah. will say to you that I have not my my handle on the details of this aren't great because I haven't okay. looked at this history in a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, the the American Medical Association uh, lobbied Congress and scuttled this plan. So jumping forward, then the ACA was really the and you can correct me if I'm wrong the first successful major reform in addressing the issue of Americans lacking coverage. Now, why are we still debating this issue today? Did the bill fall short of expectations or did it just not do enough? So real quick, I mean, I think when, when we think about the sweep of history and coverage in the United States, Medicare and Medicaid, the creation of those programs in 1965, that was really a, a huge advancement. What we had had up till then was a system primarily made up of employer-based coverage. And that's where the majority of Americans continue to get their coverage, right? We're talking, I think it's like 150-some million people get their insurance through their work. That's the dominant way that people are insured in the United States. Then in, in the 60s, you get Medicare, which is the program to serve the elderly, and then are older Americans, as folks like to say now. And then you get... Medicaid, which is a program for low-income folks. 
So, but then you still had a whole bunch of people who, for various reasons, were falling outside of those three buckets, right? And so since the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, the question has been, how do you get the rest of the people who are falling through the cracks covered? That's the question that people have been asking. So in when President Bill Clinton gets elected, he's trying to come up with a plan for how you get people, for example, who work, but work at places that don't offer insurance. How can those people get covered, right? Like that's a big problem. If your employer does not offer insurance, you're too young for Medicare, you make too much money for Medicaid, what are you going to do? You're being penalized because you have a job that where your employer doesn't offer insurance. That doesn't seem right. So trying to solve for that. And I think that that's sort of the question that has galvanized Democratic ideas and Republican ideas for the last, you know, quarter century or so. So, you know, I'm going to pause there to sort of help frame this up so we can really understand what the Affordable Care Act was trying to achieve in 2010. Yeah, we're going to take a little sip of water as we eat this enormous hamburger. Uh, oh, we're not going to sip off that shake? Uh, we're going to do the shake later. I think that's the strategy. Okay. S- start with the hamburger, fries okay. off for a little bit of a break, and then we just got yeah. the is shakes it, the whole. That's another it, episode. Real quick, is there ketchup on this burger? Because if there's ketchup on this burger, Dan, like I'm not, I'm not down. How do you feel about cheese? I love cheese. Okay, so we're going to do extra cheese. Okay. No ketchup. I feel like mayo might be a bit filling too. Yeah. It's got that I like heavy that. fat content in it. Some pickles, some onions. We raw do pickles. Onions. It's your it's your burger. It's I mean, my I'm burger. Just, okay. I'm just a, a burger Sherpa here. A guy. <laughs> I love it, man. You're amazing. Thank yeah, you so feel, much. Feel free to it, feel free to steal the term burger <laughs> Sherpa. Um one one thing I want to jump back to. And if you, if you don't have an answer for this, this is fine. But a lot of the opposition to reform is always focused on socialism. I mean, it's always focused on the, 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 the uh, let me just, I'll just scratch that part out. It's always focused on socialism. Has that been the argument against every reform effort since World War II, or were there others that entered in there? I think that there are lots of concerns with health mm-hmm. policy reform. I think there are obviously the concerns about the financial hits that industry would make. And industry also, you talked about a little while ago, you talked about villains. Uh, increasingly, hot people who run hospitals uh, have been called into question for the business practices that they engage in. Um, are they taking advantage of, of the system? Are they providing good enough care at a low enough price? And I think, you know, we can't forget about doctors. I mean, you know, doctors can and do successfully to varying degrees make sure that they get paid. So there's that concern with health reform. Another concern with health reform is, and I guess, you know, you say the word socialism. I don't really know Mm -hmm. what that means in that context. I don't mean to your question, but just that critique that's out there. And I think when you, when you sort of look at the details of it, it's like, okay, if we have a government-run plan, that means all these people, 150 million folks who get insurance through work, might not get that anymore. They might not have that option. And they might not like it because, you know what, Dan? It's a smaller, less generous 
plan, the government plan may be less generous than what they're getting right now. And you know, and I know, people, particularly in the US, want their options. Don't take my options away. Wait, 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 you're telling me I can't like get this sweet deal from my employer? I've got to take a government plan now? Whoa, right? So there's gonna be potentially a lot of pushback there. And then there's just sort of the fear of the unknown. What, what would this new system look like? How difficult would it be to get care? If my mom, had a, who's going to turn 80 this June, needed urgent care, could she get it? Could she not? I don't know, because we're talking about completely overhauling this. So I think, you know, unfortunately, in our country, a lot of folks look at and talk about healthcare through a political lens. And so you use, you know, these words like socialism can get tossed around and can be sort of signals to people to mean things. And I feel like that that really does a disservice to the debate in and of itself, because the debate is essential, but we need to really be more clear about what we're talking about when we're debating these things. It's interesting you bring that part up too, because I do think the word socialism also does a disservice to the opposition, which maybe is what you meant, which is, again, the majority of people right now are served by the current system, you know, whether you whether that's a good thing or not remains to be seen. But to offer an alternative that potentially changes that, I can understand why people would take that very personally. You know, a couple of years back, I had a guest on this show who was in business for himself and had to close down shop after the ACA uh, because his premiums went up. He was in Arizona and his premiums went up to such a degree that he just it just made more sense to go and go back and work for somebody else. And again, you could argue how good was his healthcare that he was that he had before. Sure. But but all the same, you know, I can understand why he'd be a little cheesed off about it to use a burger reference. Sorry, very sorry. We're going to keep that apology in the recording. Yeah, so I, I get into the ACA then. Sure. What's the gap that exists now? Like what didn't the ACA cover that we need to address today? So I think I want to you know, I, I took this question really seriously, and um, I, I broke the answer into three buckets. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about coverage. The ACA really did improve coverage. It reduced the number of uninsured adults by 41% from 48.2 million people to about 28 million people, Dan. That happened through a combination of uh, states expanding their Medicaid program that, again, that's the program that serves low-income people. Under a Supreme Court ruling, the states had the option whether to expand Medicaid. And as of right now, 12, all but 12 states have chosen to expand their Medicaid programs. So you have a big jump there. And then the other people who now have coverage that didn't are, are the people that we were talking about before, the folks who have jobs where insurance is not offered. Uh, and so they can go to these exchanges and they, can, they get a subsidy. They get financial help from the federal government to pay that helps cover the monthly costs of the premiums. And so Obamacare has really shrunken the gap of how many people are uninsured. So that's, right, like, that's a big deal. Um, so I think we got to acknowledge that. And then, you know, you want to talk about out-of-pocket costs. And this is really a big deal too, Dan, 
right now there are caps on how much people can spend out of pocket thanks to the ACA. It's about 8,700 bucks for an individual, $17,400 for a family. Those caps are in place. That's a big deal. Another thing that's a real big deal is insurers can no longer cherry pick, right? I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but if you had a pre-existing condition, there was a good chance you might not get insurance. Or if you did get insurance, you get insurance for everything but that pre-existing condition. Really completely devaluing what this product would be. Like, why is it worth it at all? It's just sort of like catastrophic care insurance. The Affordable Care Act is completely revolutionized in this sense, revolutionized what insurance is. And it means that people are now able to more reliably have coverage, whether they're sick or not. If you've got a chronic condition, you're not going to be denied. And I can't remember the number, but there are tens of millions of Americans who have chronic conditions. So there's all that. Then in terms of the cost of the system, the Affordable Care Act had some pieces in it to try to get at the cost, but in part because it's so politically hot, some things never came into being and it just didn't do enough. But I mean, look, today we still have a bunch of people who are uninsured in our country and that's in part because the ACA didn't go uh, as far as it could and we can get into more like what that is and what that means. But we're still yeah. approximately like 30 million people don't have insurance. You know, my, my oldest son has a pre-existing condition that would make him uninsurable under the private market or in the private market right. you know, prior to the passage of the ACA. And I remember when the prototype, when Romneycare was passed here in Massachusetts, I remember thinking to myself, I can't live in any other state and my son can't live in any other state. And, and and be be insured on the private private market due to uh, due to his due, due to his condition. So uh, so at any rate, there's just I just want to throw that out there for folks. So so we've still got this 30 million that are uninsured. Why? So I'll start by not answering the question directly. Okay. So last year, uh, as part of the American Rescue Plan under the Biden administration, um, the president and Congress agreed to increase the subsidies for people on the ACA. So instead of having to pay $300 a month uh, for your, uh, your premium, you'd pay $200 a month or whatever. And the more generous this subsidy became, the more people signed up for health insurance. And I think that the economic reality is that for a subset of Americans, insurance is not valuable at a certain price point. And sort of the younger, typically the demographics would show, the younger you are, the healthier you are, the less likely, the less interested you are in spending money on something you don't really need. So how cheap can you make a product? That's a little bit of the challenge. And so there are people who will argue that if you made these ACA subsidies more generous, even than they are right now, you'd probably see it a further decrease in the number who are uninsured. Part of the uninsured also are undocumented immigrants. They are not eligible for these ACA subsidies. So you've got that challenge too. So that's... Um, that's a big part. Those those groups make up a big part of who are uninsured in the U.S. And let me let me take a cold-hearted, capitalistic, 
view of of those two groups and and ask if i'm a healthy middle-aged person with health insurance how does how do undocumented immigrants or otherwise healthy young people not having insurance impact me personally so if people are uninsured they'll still get care there's certain sort of standards and conditions but hospitals are required to provide care to people if they're in in dire straits if you come in off the street and you have been shot and you do not have insurance and if you are not treated you will die that healthcare provider has to treat you they don't and then if you needed like three months of really if what you needed is three months of recuperating in the hospital, the hospital is not obligated to keep you in the hospital for three months, but they are obligated to make sure they fix you enough so that when they kick you out of the hospital, you won't die in the next day. You know what I mean? That care costs money, right? Like if you get shot, who's going to pay the bill if you don't have insurance? And if that person themselves can't pay, and sometimes that person can pay, or pay part of it, but if they can't cover it all, the hospital has to eat that. The more sort of uncompensated care there is, the more hospitals will take that number and then build that into their prices for services. Who pays the prices? The people who have insurance. That means our employers, the federal government, Medicare, Medicaid, right? So people are paying. As hospitals increase their prices, insurers increase their prices. So it's it's a little bit like that. Does that make sense? It. it totally makes sense. The reason I ask it too is that there is a segment of the population that I don't want to say doesn't care whether somebody's uninsured or not, but that feels that personal choice should come into come into this. And that if somebody doesn't want to get insured, doesn't care to get insured, they shouldn't have to. And if somebody's undocumented, not paying into the system, although undocumented immigrants generally are paying into the system, that's conversation for another date, then they shouldn't be entitled to it. And that there's a point where uh, we can reduce the uninsured enough where those the, effect, the spillover effects on insurance are manageable. So this is more of a philosophical question, I think, than maybe a a numbers question and feel free to defer if you don't want to answer. But at some point, this just becomes a moral debate, right? Do you feel that people should be entitled to health care or not? I, I mean, I think, there, I think there's no doubt that that question, the moral ethical question is here, is health care a right? Is a, is a big question that's out there. And a lot of people who favor some Medicare for all like system argue it is a right. Everybody should be entitled to healthcare. Many, many other countries around the world have decided it is. It's unsettled. That's an unsettled debate in the United States. I think the point of your previous question that I appreciated acknowledges that it's not just a philosophical or a moral question. You know, it's not something that can just get sort of boiled down to some sort of libertarian, like, well, you do whatever you want to do and that's fine with me. There are economic repercussions because the the system as a whole, it's not a light switch. It's not an on or off. There is a like middle option, which is like the safety net option. There, you know, we don't allow in the United States, we do not allow somebody who is 
at risk of dying to die even if they're uninsured. That, that care will be provided. It won't be the best care, but there'll be some amount of care and that care costs money. And if you are alive in this country and you pay taxes, if you work, if you have insurance, that person who is uninsured and what costs they incur will touch you. You know, it's indirect, but it will touch you. So that's something I think we as a society need to kind of keep in mind. One thing I'll note too for the listener in regards to my comment on undocumented immigrants, if you want some proof of that, it's actually, I think the second episode of this podcast ever was with someone who spent the first 16 years of his life in the United States undocumented, was brought here as a child by his mom and talks about the life of undocumented immigrants, but also how they are paying into the system. Just so nobody thinks I'm jumping at this from an uninformed point. I want to want to jump to one more argument made against against expanding healthcare, uh, which is the and again it kind of builds off the choice argument, which is the cost of treating chronic ailments. So, for example, you know obesity is a big problem in the United States. There are people who are smokers, for example. Is there evidence that chronic illness, is there evidence that that self-inflicted chronic ailments result in or, or contribute to the rising cost of healthcare? So again, we'll take obesity or we'll take, I mean, smoking's probably an easier one because that's a choice to do it. But is there evidence that that affects the cost of healthcare in America versus, you know, let's say like Italy or the UK or Japan or what have you? I mean, I think we just have to be honest about one thing first here, which is if you use care, that contributes to the cost of care, right? Like full stop. So you go into the doctor's office and the doctor gives you a Band-Aid for the cut because you were rollerblading and you cut your elbow. God knows why I came up with that example, but- uh, It's okay. I brought in a burger eating contest, so rollerblading is- So like- that's going to contribute to the cost of care, anything that happens, right? And so if you have a chronic condition and that chronic condition is poorly managed uh, and you end up at the hospital and the doctor, you go to the ER again and again and again, yeah, you are, and this is in many circles, this is sort of a pejorative term, but those people are called super utilizers. And, you know, sometimes they're called the five fifties, the the 5% of patients that are responsible for 50% of the care, right? So the thing is the the 5% in 2022 who are responsible for 50% of the care are not the same 5% of people who are going to be responsible for 50% of the costs in 2023. That group moves, right? And there's regression to the mean. People get well. People don't stay sick. Some there's you know some subset. I'm sure, of course, there is that's going to be there. That are sort of as long as they are alive, they are going to be in that five percent. But I think this is in the last twenty years. There's been a lot of energy and focus. This complex care on, on, on patients that are considered complex. And what does that mean? That means people who have multiple physical problems. They also have potentially psychological problems, cognitive problems. There's poverty involved. There can be violence involved. And there's been a lot of energy and attention looking at how do we treat this population in a way so that their care can be better managed. 
And that in some ways has been the proverbial $64,000 question that no one has been able to, that code has yet to be cracked in a meaningful way. There are experiments. There is some signs that you can do things like housing for certain very sick homeless people, that that can reduce those costs. But there's a lot of experimenting going on and people just don't really know what to do. I think the other piece here, and it can be a slippery slope, it can be really easy to blame the people like, oh, you need to like eat better. Oh, you need to stop smoking or whatever. And to a certain extent, these poor health behaviors reflect not necessarily great education, less access to good food, less access to safe places. Too binary a way of like looking at the world. Like, you know, you want to talk about costs in the US, like what's going on. One of these other shifts that's happened as a result of the Affordable Care Act is I think it's helped people better understand, Dan, that there used to be a lot of assumption like what's really driving the cost is that people just keep showing up in the hospital in the emergency room. That is such a tiny fraction of the quote-unquote problem. The big problem that we really are dealing with is where our conversation started. It's the prices. How much are we being charged? Why do prices keep going up? Are they going up fairly? Is it indiscriminate? Like, should Medicare, like accept all drugs? Should they approve all drugs and put all of those on the formulary? What about copycat drugs? I mean, there, there's so many questions around how we balance trying to make sure there's new innovation, there are new options, there's ways to improve healthcare services with trying to control costs. And that's the fundamental tension that we really need to be talking about much more than like, wait, what's up with the people who are overweight and are not managing their diabetes well? And, and that actually tees up my next question very well. And that brings us to the present day with the current debate on how to further reform it. And I'm going to start with, there are really three approaches to it. And I'm going to start with the one that generates the most heat, which is Medicare for all. So for myself and the other lay people listening, you know, what's the concept behind Medicare for all? What are the what are the pros and, and what are the drawbacks to it? So Medicare for all, you know, and let's be clear, these Medicare for all is a slogan. Like you I can't remember how many pages the Affordable Care Act is, but the, the Affordable Care Act is is thousands of pages of policy. Medicare for all would be thousands of pages of policy. So there are choices <clears throat> that would have to be made. And one of the biggest ones would be, would you cover undocumented immigrants in a Medicare for all plan or would you not, right? So it's hard to say. And I just bring that up as a, as a point to say, like it, it's impossible to say what Medicare for all really is. But the idea is that everybody, you were born and you are born into a health plan. You do not have to buy insurance. You do not have uh, monthly premiums that you have to pay. Although that could be, you could conceive of a plan that would have that, right? So, but basically Medicare for all means you have insurance, you are covered. And so one pro of that is that you no longer have people who are uninsured. People can know if they get sick, if, if they lose their job, 
if some terrible thing happens in their life, they'll have access to care. They're not going to die because they couldn't afford care, right? Like, and that's a big deal. That's huge. That's huge. What are some downsides? Well, how much will the federal government choose to pay doctors, hospitals, drug makers? And if you're one of those groups, you're going to have strong feelings about that. And then you get to this bigger question, which we alluded to in the answer before. If you decrease prices, what impact does that have on innovation? Innovation for new drugs, new techniques. What impact does that have on your workforce pipeline? Do people still want to be doctors? Are prices going to be so low that you stifle innovation and interest in the field? So what is the unknown? Uh, do you lead to potentially not having, is it hard, does it take months and months and months to get in to see a doctor? So I'm not saying that that's a guarantee. And if you get Medicare for all folks on, they'll say what, what Gorenstein just said is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but those are potential downsides and at the very least questions that need to be considered. And it's in a way, it's a variation of the debate that we have when we talk about drug prices and regulating drug prices. So that's, that's a real high-level overview of some pros and cons to single-payer. Mm. Now, option two is the public option, which didn't make it into the ACA. Again, same thing. What does that say, pros and cons? So a public option is a, is a government-run insurance plan that's in the mix to compete with private plans on the individual exchanges. So if you get an ACA subsidy and you go on and you're, you're looking and there's a plan from Cigna and a plan from your local Blue Cross, there's also going to be a government-run plan, right? The public option plan. And the idea is that that public option would be competing against uh, these private insurance companies and that arguably the government, because it's not trying to make money, would have a lower price plan. It would be more competitive and that that would force the Uniteds and the Anthems to lower their prices. So that's the idea of what that is. What are the pros and cons? I mean, I think the pros are you're introducing more competition and the idea is if you have more competition, you're going to see lower prices and this is a way to help kind of stimulate that. Some people see the cons as um, it, it, it doesn't go far enough. You're still going to have people who are uninsured. You're still going to have people who won't be able to afford the public option or who will not feel that the public option offers them enough value. So it doesn't like solve the problem if the problem really is getting everybody insured in the country. Um, I think there's some business concerns that a public option could ruin or upend health insurance as we know it. And so there's some business concerns there too. Mm. It's, it's interesting. And I'm going to throw this out there. If you don't have any comments on it, that's fine. But a year or two back, I did an interview with somebody running as a Green Party candidate out in Michigan. And we got into the subject of, of single-payer health care. He had dual Canadian and U.S. citizenship. So he was able to use both systems. And one of the things I discovered in jumping into the data is that if you look at the two highest, if you look at the countries that score the highest in terms of healthcare costs as a percent 
of, of GDP. U.S. far and away is the leader. Second place is Switzerland, which I think falls about 5% lower. And the one key difference between Switzerland and the U.S., because Switzerland effectively has a healthcare system similar to that under the ACA. They have an individual mandate. The key difference is insurance companies can't be for-profit. So in order to be a health insurer, you have to be a not-for-profit entity. And I, I bring that fact up because I'm wondering is how much of a problem are the insurers in this whole equation, just in terms of what they charge? Well, so I think that insurers play a really interesting role in the U.S. healthcare system. I think that they're often maligned and seen as people who only care about making money. Um, but I think that health insurers are really, um, they're middlemen. And so mm-hmm. they try, their job is to kind of play both sides. That's that's not to say that they're bad people. That's more to say that that's what the role is. Their job is to try to keep prices low for their customers, which are employers and individuals. And they need to cut deals with uh, hospitals and doctors. And... I think that insurers are definitely out to make money and they've made a lot of money and people have not been able to access care as a result of that. So I think that that's, that is what it is. I think we have to acknowledge that. At the same time, insurers theoretically could be playing a more aggressive, assertive role with the doctors and the hospitals in changing how... Uh, these, these folks are paid. Primarily, people right now are paid what's called fee-for-service. Every time you deliver, every time a doctor or a nurse or a hospital provides a certain service, there's a code. You enter the code and you get paid a certain amount of money for it. There are alternative contracts where hospitals and doctors are kind of offered like a bundle of money and they're told like, you need, we're going to give you $50 million and you've got to keep this population of you know, a couple thousand people healthy with that money. And if you go under, then we can share some of the savings. If you go over, you're going to have to eat some percentage of that savings. That's an idea that's been kicking around a bunch. It hasn't been widely adopted. It's hard to do and people don't want to lose money. So insurers though could be pushing that more than they are. And in California, where you've got the Obamacare exchange, they, which is called Covered California, they have just hit on a deal with the insurers to hold the insurers to account for high quality care, better health outcomes. So it's not just the price, but Covered California wants to make sure that the insurers are looking out to make sure people are getting better care, higher quality care, that the health, that people are in better health than they were before, and that there's an opportunity to push the insurers to do more of that, to act as more of an ombudsman almost for, for these hospitals. So it's interesting. So I think that, look, insurers are out there to make money. They make money. And to some degree, it's at the expense of people's health. I think that also insurers have played a role where they are helping people. And there is definitely a lot more that could be done. And some of my favorite healthcare sources have complained that the insurers lack imagination and creativity in their approach to how they do their work and that it'd be really great and a lot of people could stand to benefit if the insurers were willing to 
be more aggressive. I know we're almost at the hour. I can wrap it up in one more question if you have another minute. Sure. And if you have, to, yeah. So let's go to the third camp, and this is going to be a rather glib interpretation of the third camp, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is, you know, the third argument is we just do nothing. So what are the consequences of that? Well, I think we live with it every day. I think the consequences of the status quo are that you've got, you know, 30 some million people who are uninsured. You have uh, people who are suffering with chronic conditions. You have people who are isolated and alone that have almost no access to mental health services, to substance use services. You have lots of people making a fair amount of money and health insurance being expensive, the cost of medication being expensive. At the same time, you have um, treatments, drugs, world-class facilities where a cancer diagnosis 20 years ago is now a chronic c condition. People are, are living longer, so there are some real benefits to some of the things that we have, some of these innovations. What role do the prices that we pay contribute to the innovations is this perennial question that economists kick around all the time. And frankly, it'd be awesome if more people in the country also kicked that around. How do we think about, and I'm not trying to plug our show, how do we think about the trade-offs between the prices that we pay and the innovations we get? That's a fundamental question. Wouldn't it be something if we could have a a politician who would take that question on and try to have that question, try to have that conversation in a serious way, not to scare people, but to really talk through what the challenges and the opportunities and risks of that are. So I think the downside to the status quo is that we spend a boatload of money for really mediocre outcomes. I don't think there are many people who are satisfied with our healthcare system. You have a lot of people engaged every day in trying to figure out how to make healthcare better. And Dan, I know you know this, there's a lot of suffering in America. And a lot of that suffering has to do with people's lack of access to care. That's a problem. Are we okay with that? I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave it a review and share it with one friend you think might like it too. You can also sign up for my email list to get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day at ydhty.com slash news. You can also find Dan's podcast, Tradeoffs, on your favorite podcast player or via the link in the episode notes. Now, first off, I would like to credit myself for building an episode on healthcare around an analogy that involves eating the unhealthiest meal I could possibly think of. That out of the way, there are a few takeaways from this conversation. First is that there's no changing healthcare without someone giving something up. We either get less in terms of service, providers get paid less, or both. And the political debate we're having over this presents two choices that are really easy for most of us. That's either somebody else making less money, or us doing nothing. But nowhere in the political debate is the question, would you be willing to accept less choice so that someone else can have access to care? 
And I think this question strikes at the root of many things American and ties back to some earlier conversations we've been having around food and energy in the May and June episodes, because some of us want to address climate change, but don't want to consume less energy as part of the equation. Some of us want the world's largest military, but we don't want to raise taxes to pay for it. And as we enter into this decade and see the effects of climate change, political polarization, and increasing debt levels, we need to take a hard look at the work we're willing to do in order to solve some of our most pressing problems. And it's going to be small, it's going to be anonymous, it's going to look terrible on Instagram, but it's 100% necessary and, in fact, might be possibly mandatory given the state of affairs. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement, can't believe he talked himself into that title, is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios. And I'm going to edit out the cheesed off thing. Oh, I uh, thought you were going to keep it. Well, all right. I'll keep it fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, dude, it's your show. Adam edits it, so he'll keep it in because <laughs> he doesn't care what I think. Um,